Welcome to the State of Mind podcast, where we create conversations about mental health that change lives by bringing you the stories underneath the slogans. We want people to learn that they are empowered by their experience, not inhibited. On today's episode, I am feeling very fortunate because I get to be the interviewee and my friend and colleague, Dr. David Zarnett from the University of Toronto will be interviewing me and asking me questions about some of my thoughts and ways of approaching human suffering, human well-being, and how I navigate difficult moments in life. We also get into a little bit of the ethos behind Starts With Me, which is the company I founded that has led in part to the State of Mind podcast. We explore that. We also explore how our individual well-being can contribute to societal well-being and how important and necessary it is to start at the individual level and how psychology and a lot of mental health practices can help us do that. So I think I enjoyed this a lot. I think you will too. And a reminder, please subscribe, please share this, please get in touch with us to ask questions or to seek guests or topics that you would like to see covered. And thank you for listening. We're about to pass 5,000 downloads. We probably already have, and that is a magical thing. So without further ado, I bring you Q&A with Dr. Zed. David? Thank you. Actually, Dr. Zed, I want to call you. <laughs> Just David. David, thank you for uh, taking your time to indulge me in my... Madness. Whatever. Madness, yes. Um, so we're, gonna, we're doing a little switcheroo here where you're going to ask me questions. And we'll see where we go. Okay. Makes sense. I, got anything to add? Should I ask, should I start right now? Let's do it. Okay. Unless you want to, you know, <laughs> no. sing uh, from the mountaintop about something. Um, where to start? No, no. I rather, I think the thinking behind this was to give you, um, I'm, I'm always so curious about your life and how you're thinking and, and where you've come from uh, and where you think you're going. So I thought that this would be a great opportunity to, I assume that if I'm interested in that, there would be a good chunk of other people who might be. Um, and I was listening to, um, I, I think it was like, what, TSN 1050 this morning. Sometimes I listen to talk uh, sports radio. It's, I find it calming. And there's, yeah. this, there's this former uh, NHL player who's being interviewed about his own battle with, um, I think it was alcohol abuse, some kind, some kind of uh, substance addiction. And it's just great hearing these personal stories of resilience and struggle and what people go through. And, and we've all, you know, Mike, you've been there and you're, you're, you're still experiencing your journey. So I find that it's, you know, it was sort of funny. I heard that this morning. Cause I was like, Oh, awesome. I think this is like a sign that mm -hmm. this kind of conversation <laughs> is, um, is it might be quite useful. Of course, for me, um, hopefully yeah. for you and, and for the thousands of listeners. Right. 
<laughs> we're getting there. We're, we're just past 5,000 uh, downloads, which is pretty oh, amazing. That's huge. Yeah. That's amazing. It is amazing. No doubt. It's awesome. Okay. So the, the way I, the way I organize things. Um, so a few days ago, I was thinking about what do I, what do I want to know from Mike and what, what do I think the audience might want to know? And I organized uh, the questions into three categories. Um, okay. Your inner world. Mm -hmm. So like, what do you see and what's going on inside the, that's that skull of yours. Um, <laughs> of course, the second category is starts with me, which is your, um, your business, your project, your, in, in many ways, maybe your mission, your purpose over the last few years. And then of course, um, most importantly, or most relevantly over the next few months is the festival, uh, you're organizing and I'm, and I'm grateful to play some small role in, in helping you get there, uh, with Jen Grant, who is totally indispensable and invaluable and, and brilliant organizer. So shout out to her. Um, yeah, she's awesome. So Okay, so I, th I thought we'd dig into your, your inner world, see where you're at. Um, okay. Uh, so I have this idea that the, the mood in which we wake up in, in the morning uh, tells us a lot. Um, if we're sort of like, we, you know, and, and I think there's actually, I, in my email to you, I said there's no scientific basis for this, but I, right. I do think that those who are experience low mood or, or depression have struggle, struggle getting out of bed in the morning. So what I'd be interested to hear from you, if you want to share, uh, is where were you at this morning? How have the last few mornings been? Um, do you believe that that's a, like a good indicator of where you're, where you're going or, or how you're doing? What, how do you think about mornings and how was your morning this morning? Okay. I, I'm going to, I was actually trying to write my answers to this because I, since finishing school and not writing, I think my thoughts gets, are getting scattered. So I'm, I'm trying to return to writing and uh, I'm going to read actually what I wrote first. Okay. Okay. So I said, in response to that specific question, the first thing I'd say is that I don't think one area, or in this case, one moment of life is an adequate indicator of a bigger picture. Although certainly how we behave, react and respond to situations can be revealing. For example, depending on life circumstance, we might wake up in the morning and due to the modifiers influencing our life, like the pandemic or a modifier is something that's consistently stressing someone out in their life. So maybe a family member's dying or they just got fired from a job or something like that. Okay, so I'll reread that. For example, depending on life circumstances, we might wake up in the morning and due to the modifiers influencing our life, we might be experiencing low mood, we might be distracted, and we might have a lack of motivation. So on this morning, using the mental health continuum, for example, which would be kind of from low end to high end mental health, we'd probably be on the lower end. Yet, depending on our skill set and self-awareness, we can then take action to ameliorate our situation. On the other hand, sleep, uh, sleep and when and what we wake up to, I think I wrote, this is getting choppy, but anyhow, sleep and what we wake up to can also have an influence on our mental health, meaning you know, obviously if we didn't sleep well, but if we 
live in a chaotic household or if we have difficult things in our community or neighborhood, that can certainly impact this. Um, so one last example is that I am generally slow and foggy in the morning and it can take me a while to get my head screwed on straight. So in that case, I don't think the assumption that our mornings are a valid indicator of our general state of well-being holds. Though, if I didn't have the self-awareness and the skill set to ground myself and kind of get my head screwed on straight, then I'd probably be lost and miserable for most of the day. So this morning, I, I'd say my mornings have improved as my, my ability to go to sleep on time has improved. And I, does that make sense? All those things I just said? Stop rambling. Yeah, it, 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 it did make sense, of course. Um, but I think you sort of avoided the question a bit. Okay. Pushing just to be a, a total, total. Please. Jerk. No, I no. I want to know yeah. more. I want to know more about your, what did, what was your specific, you, okay. You mentioned slow okay, and foggy. So I like that. Yes. That got us, yeah. that got me, that got us towards, <laughs> I guess, answering the question. How was your morning today? Like how, what was it like? Sure. Tell us a bit more about the slow and foggy. And then maybe I think that this would be great. Um, what do you do to get yourself, um, you know, to your, yeah, I, your normal enthusiastic self that I know. Sure. Okay. I did avoid it in that sense. And, and reading robotically does, isn't always my style, but I think it helps me sometimes. Okay. This morning, I, <laughs> I don't know how, how much disclosure I want to give here. I wasn't as prepared for this presentation I gave this morning as, that, as I would have liked to be. And that's always the case, I guess. So I do need to give myself the benefit of the doubt. So I wake up this morning, it's the first day back for the kids to school. Um, and I start to worry about the presentation. You know, how can I get prepared? Are my slides ready? Is this ready? And, and that for me brings up anxiety. And then what starts to happen is, depending again on my ability to slow down, I'll pick up my phone and, and I'll think, okay, the subconscious thought is anxiety, distraction. So I may, I have the impulse to open my email. And then I think, okay, no, this is not what I want to do. I know Dr. Andrew Huberman, who's incredible, says, don't look at your phone for a while. Go and look outside, look at the horizon. That's like the best way to kind of wake up in the morning. So I try to practice that. And so I did that. And then, of course, I find myself back to my phone being impulsively wanting to look at the email. I think I may have avoided it a second time. Then I went downstairs. I took my medication. I take medication for ADHD, which I find to be very, very helpful. Um, so then I take the medication because often I'll forget. And then <laughs> that's like the funniest part about it is that it's supposed to help you stay on track and do things. But if you, that's part of the ADHD life is, is you forget things and you have a hard time managing time and all these other things. Anyway, so I go downstairs, I do that. 
and then I think, okay, kids have to be ready, but the snowstorm happened outside. So for me, if had I, the, the snowstorm was a blessing because it forced me to engage in physical activity. And had I not had that opportunity to go outside and do something, I probably would have spun in my head and who knows. Anyway, so I went outside, I shoveled, came back inside, the kids were up. I had already sort of gotten them awake. And I'm still in the background of my mind. I've, I've really made a distinct effort to be better organized in the morning. And I'm noticing how distracted I get and how easily it is to get distracted. Even at bedtime for the kids, I'm really trying that too, is so what the one thing I have to do is just get out of the house. So anytime I'm doing anything that distracts me from that, hopefully the alarm bells go off and I realize it and then I get back on track because that also produces anxiety. I think there's, I don't know what the literature is on this, but there's a huge correlation between ADHD and anxiety because the anxiety comes from being disorganized and not having a sense of what to do, right? And then you worry, okay, I don't know what to do. And therefore, whatever I'm supposed to do that I don't know what to do, that increases the anxiety. And then you get into the spin, it's horrible. Um, Anyhow, so then it was actually quite magical. We got out of the house on time. We got them to school, got back home, ironed my shirt, got ready for the, <laughs> ironed my shirt for my online presentation um, and then came back home. Or sorry, then did the presentation. I'll give an example perhaps of a morning that doesn't go so well, maybe. Well, one, it starts with a bad sleep. Okay, didn't go to bed. That's a whole nother story altogether, getting to bed on time. And then I have a sense of being dragged around by the fatigue and the sense of low mood and the sense of dread and doom. So on a, in a, and then when my kids aren't doing what they've been asked to do, right? Having breakfast, brushing their teeth, getting the blah, 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 blah. Then I start to take that personally, right? Why aren't they just listening to me? You know, they're not getting dressed. Oh, that's a slight against me. You know, it's like our sense of self shrinks. And so that would be the ego taking over small sense of self in a, in a mindfulness context, we call it small self. So then I get into small self and everybody's against me and everything's a problem. And then I just storm around like a miserable prick. And then I can snap out of it. But takes a while to snap out of it. I, maybe I need a long walk. Maybe I lie down. Maybe I try to meditate, call a friend. That's where those habits become really effective. Okay. That was a, a long answer. What did, what did you think about that? I, um, I mean, there's so much there that really nicely preempts a lot of the questions that I want to ask you about. Um, maybe three things I'd pick up on um, the, and this really resonated um, going outside and doing something. I actually find that to be the, so my, my partner, Michelle, I'm always like, get your sorry ass outside. Once you wake up, not always great for relationship building, but, but it's, there's, a, there, there's actually something about the first thing you do, like you said, um, look at the horizon. And think, you know, thankfully in this morning we had an opportunity to shovel. 
I find that's a, I find that's such a productive way to start. Um, and maybe I, maybe I'd ask you a bit about what do you think, if you know, it feels good, what prevents you from making that a habit? Why, what do you, do you, do you have any, do you have a sense of like, ah, why, you know, why am I not going outside? I know I'm going to feel great when I'm there. I know it's going to get me back on track when I'm back inside. Do you have a sense of. Yeah, that, I mean, Jesus, or is that too- I would. So no, no, that's a great question. And one I've really been grappling with a lot lately. <laughs> My wife, five days a week wakes up at six o'clock, six 30 does a 30 40 minute workout every day like clockwork it is unbelievable she's certainly a role model for me in that it's i don't i'm not that person um i think it's so i try to go big picture and then small for me to stop using drugs and etc i had to be in such a dark place so i think there's a subset of people who until the conditions of their situation are so bad they just are not going to change their behavior i learned that by changing my in recovery by changing my behavior and taking it seriously i started to feel better everything started to go better so that was a self-motivating process. I never wanted to feel like I used to feel. So anything I can do to not feel that, I will do as if my life depended on it. Now, when it comes to the physical stuff, because that was really the specific question, I think, is my life's pretty good right now. My, my health is relatively pretty good. I'm definitely a bit overweight. I'm like a stocky person, but I definitely could probably lose 20 pounds. No problem. No questions asked. Um, but like, does that really bother me? Not really. So there's two things going on right now. One is, is it this never-ending, self-critical, torturous voice that is constantly feeding me with this madness that I'm not good enough? If I, if I only was doing this, I would be good enough. And then even if I do that, there's something else that I'm not good enough. And, and so just endless. And that is a tormenting story that's always going on in my mind. And so there's that piece. And then the other piece is I, and this I can speak, I think is definitely accurate for me. Obviously I would feel better if I exercised more because when you exercise, you usually feel better. And that's a wonderful thing. And that would enhance my self-esteem, I think. That would enhance kind of maybe my confidence or something like that. Where I have a really hard time is I, I that self-critical voice comes in and it, it's the message that the reason you're having a hard time doing this is because you're weak or you're a pussy or something like that. Then if I do do the exercise, so I basically have, I do about once a week with her on the, usually on Saturdays. When I do do the exercise, then I have to deal with the feelings of shame and guilt and inadequacy. 
because when you're exercising, you feel that your limitations, right? It's always about the limitations. So it's like, oh yeah, I am a wussy. I can't do 10 push-ups. I can't do this. I can't do that. Oh, this is horrible. This is horrible. So I think for me, there's part of it where there's an avoidance of feeling shameful that I'm not doing this enough and I'm not strong enough. It should be easier. Da, da, da. But after I always feel better, of course. Um, so that's my explanation of that. And so I think people, if I were advising someone else and I even do this myself, I have a, a worksheet about practice. So the reflection column says, and I'll miss it a little, it's, um, something like describe what it is that got in your way of doing this activity. What were you thinking, feeling, doing those kind of things? Or what were you feeling, thinking, doing, etc. that helped you do the activity? And generally I've said to you, it's that those feelings of shame and inadequacy and life's actually just pretty good. So I don't really care. That, I mean, I, I find that last piece so interesting. It's things aren't bad enough to get you up and out as, as, as you're describing it. I'm sure, you know, you have a, you're active and you're not, you're downplaying all the things you do. Sure. Um, but that's interesting that things have to get, and I wonder if a lot of people experience that. And I wonder the extent to which I've experienced it where things, things aren't, it's not challenging enough, or I don't feel pain enough to address a problem. Um, totally. And so I find, okay, so that, that's actually really, that's, actually that's a really, big, sorry, what were, I don't want to no, interrupt you, but no, I was just saying, I was just reflecting on how I find that to be very thought provoking that what, how, how bad do things have to be for us to do what we need to do to make us feel better? Yeah. And then I had, of course, my gluttonous intellect, if that's a, weird combination of words goes to oh maybe that describes why young people are coming up with excuses to feel bad <laughs> not such a horrible thing to say but things for the most part are actually really good for us human beings and let me take that back we have a negativity bias that skews us to negative information and to skews us to thinking things are worse than they are to protect ourselves, but that is no longer the case. And I think that mechanism of looking at negative things and coming up with excuses or coming up with better to say rationalizations or justifications for why we feel a certain way is really unhelpful. And that was a total tangent off the cuff, but anyhow, yeah. So, so so you think like, okay, so just to tie some of those pieces together, um, are we, is the negativity, and I think you're actually making a, a really important point that the negativity bias exists to motivate action. If we weren't yes. worried, if we weren't worried, we wouldn't collect food. If we weren't hyper aware of potential threats, we'd imperil our own survival. So do you think that say students on campus, activists are, um, trying to make it seem like the world is, is a worse place than it actually is in order to motivate themselves to do certain things. And of course, as a advocacy strategy to get other people to do things. It's a great, 
thing to think about. Um, the first thing I'd say is, I think it is, it's not conscious, right? It's not a conscious, I'm going to pretend things are worse than they are so that, of course, then I get what I want or I can motivate myself. I think, I do think it's sincere. I think it's, because I would identify myself, maybe not as much anymore, but in the past, we have a deep yearning for connection and meaning and purpose. And so if we're not finding that through our interests, or if we're not cultivating that in some sense from a moment to moment basis, then we need somewhere to steer that spotlight. And of course, what, what better moral justification than I want the world to be a better place. Therefore, this should happen. Therefore, I'm a good person. Therefore, I can feel better about myself. And I just want to, I should say that comes with my deepest sincerity. This isn't a slight against people. I don't think it's, no one's being, um, I don't know, sinister, right? No, there's no, there's no manipulation there. Just that's the thought process. Yeah. So Mike, in the, you also mentioned, um, so going back to the morning theme, you mentioned going outside, um, looking at the horizon. You also talked about the interaction with your family um, and how that can be both motivating in many ways, but also challenging. Um, there's how how do you feel so you've been a father now for what six years how old is oliver's what's eight and a half eight so so, <laughs> so how, how like what has that what has that taught you what has the that you know that's a you know, we, we talk a lot about how responsibility to put like putting kids into in positions of being responsible for something else is is incredibly maturing. Um, being a father or being a parent is next level responsibility. What over the last eight years, how do you think that has changed you given you insight into what it means to be a human, a man, or whatever, however you want to, um, whatever your gender category is? Um, yes, but no, I mean, what what has it taught you? Do, you? do you have like one or two things? I'm sure there's lots of things. Do you have like one or two things that you think are like, oh yeah, okay. That's, that comes from my role as, as a father figure. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to go back to my note here because I did write, a, I guess, a bunch about this in response to this question. So I'll try not to sound like a robot. Uh, being a father has reminded me or perhaps reinforced the things I learned in recovery from mental illness and addiction. Primarily, the idea that taking care of my mental health needs to taking care of my mental health needs to be and remain the most important thing in my life. I was told early on in recovery, if I put anything in front of my recovery, I will lose that. Meaning if I spend too much time working, or if I'm avoiding my and avoiding my self care practices, because I think I need to be doing something else, then that something else will cease to exist. So 
if I'm just working all the time, then my mental health deteriorates and then I won't be capable of doing the job and then I'll lose the job. So it's the same thing with parenting. If I'm not taking care of myself first and foremost, then I'm just going to be an asshole as a dad and a husband. And that's not what I want. And so I, we, we often think our own needs need to be secondary. And if we make our own needs primary, then in some sense, that's selfish, which is total nonsense. If, if, if we put our no, own needs in front of others so that we can take from others, then yes, that is selfish. But if we make our own needs primary so that we can be a better human being, then obviously that's not selfish. Um, okay, I'm gonna continue here. So. I'd say the reason I have kids, the reason I'm still married is because I have always made my mental health my number one priority. The relationships I have with my kids are wonderful because they act as mirrors to me and how I'm doing. Just a couple, I made a couple more notes here. Um, I'd say number one as a parent and what I've learned from being a parent is that honesty is always the most important thing. I'm sure I've lied to them about something Although at the same time, I can honestly say that I don't ever lie to them. I don't lie to them about how many cookies are left when they're whining for more. I don't lie to them that I don't have any money or a credit card in my pocket when we're at a store and they're whining for something or we're out on the street and they're bitching about wanting a treat or candy, etc. I do my absolute best to be completely transparent with them. For example, when I don't like how they're behaving or if they are specifically bothering me about something, I will say, I think what you're doing is really annoying and it's making me mad. If you don't stop, I am going to be mean to you and do something you do not like. A lot of parents will basically blame the child for the situation and then they will, and this is a bit of a pessimistic perspective, but I, it's a hundred percent true. Then they will act passive aggressively, or they will be mean out of context without explaining themselves. And that's a horrible way to treat anybody, but a lot of people do that. So here, I'm almost done here. I'd say that I am relentlessly self-reflective, not in an obsessive way, although maybe sometimes I've been taught to always ensure my side of the street is as clean as possible. For example, if I get into a fight or argument with one of my kids and I overreact and doll out an unfair punishment or consequence, it's not long that I snap out of it and I realize that I acted out of my own personal wounds, my own personal traumas maybe of my past, and that I need to recognize that and then address it with my kids. So I might say, hey, what you did wasn't okay. And I also think I overreacted and my punishment to you is unfair. So let's discuss what a more fair and reasonable consequence might be. This has a lot of great benefits. It role models taking responsibility. It shows them that I'm open to being wrong. And it shows them that I trust their judgment and that we can work through difficult situations together. Lastly, I'm learning how much my attention and energy can get pulled in all kinds of directions. And when I don't protect that to some extent, then I'm no fun to be around and I get reactive. Our attention is absolutely our most 
precious asset and commodity. I try to be open with them, to look at them with wonder and curiosity, and to practice a beginner's mind as much as I can. That's about it. There you go. Um, your point about selfishness, I think is a really powerful one. Um, I find that comes, and I think you're spot on because I think we think that caring for yourself, taking your own personal interests very seriously and structuring your day around advancing those interests is somehow unethical or immoral. Um, and you're right. Depending on what those interests are, it might be unethical or selfish in a bad sense. But if it's, if the interest is how do I be, how do I be the most effective parent, the most compassionate parent, the most loving parent, then you have to put your own health as number one. Um, which sounds like counterintuitive because when we love something, we want to put them ahead of ourselves. Um, but that's not always the right strategy. And I think what you said was really interesting because I, I've, I have this conversation with students who, um, whether in class, you know, if I teach a class on human rights and I say like, what would, what would an indicator be of a state lying about its human rights intentions, they would say, well, self-interest, right? Self-interest can't be a good thing. It can't be an indicator of moral behavior because self-interest is inherently bad. And I find that to be like a common mis misconception that a lot of people have, um, that taking care of your own is, is wrong. Um, so I think I really like what you said, that it, you can't care for others if you don't care for yourself first. And caring mm -hmm. for others is very hard and it's very draining. Um, so I take your point seriously that you have to, your, your tank better be filled and you better be filling it all the time or repeatedly mm -hmm. every few days because it, it will run out. And when it runs out, probably what happens is you overpunish. You freak out when right. you didn't have to, but it's not your fault because, you know, whatever. But like, it's just... So the case for selfishness, like I could see that as a book title, like just, we need to put our, like, it's, it's the, it's the Jordan Peterson argument of clean your room and make sure that your own place is sorted out clearly. Um, and forget all the baggage that comes with him. I think that intro, that insight is so powerful. So I just yeah, wanna... let me, uh, yeah, I want to just add, let's go down that path a bit. Yeah. Cause it's, Certainly, he he became a meme for that. Yeah, clean your room. But that is yeah. Yeah. But but that is a fundamental teaching from every wisdom tradition that's ever existed, and also from. I'm not, uh, I'm not a religious like I don't. I was going to say I'm not a religious scholar. I would say I'm a spiritual scholar, and I would say every type of spiritual practice encourages people to do that, along with any type of psychotherapeutic intervention as well. But I, I want to just read two things from the, the self-compassion book uh, from Germer and Neff, because I think they speak to this point beautifully as well. And let me just do this quickly. And then it's just a paragraph or two. Here we go. So the, the, um, the question they cite is, I need to think more about other people, not myself. Being self-compassionate is way too selfish and self-focused. 
So then they respond. Some worry that being, by being self-compassionate, rather than just focusing on being compassionate to others, they will become self-centered or selfish. However, giving compassion to ourselves actually enables us to give more to others in relationships. Research shows self-compassionate people tend to be more caring and supportive in romantic relationships and are more likely to compromise in relationship conflicts and are more compassionate and forgiving to others. And then let me just read this last part. It's from another page. It's so good. Okay. It's important to recognize that the practice of self-appreciation is not selfish or self-centered. Rather, it simply recognizes that good qualities are part of being human. Although some children may have been raised with the belief that humility means not recognizing their accomplishments, that approach can harm children's self-concept and get in the way of knowing themselves properly. Self-appreciation is a way to correct our negativity bias toward ourselves and see ourselves more clearly as a whole person. Self-appreciation also provides the emotional resilience and self-confidence needed to give to others. Okay, because that I think ties in a bit of the other things we were talking to about as well. I, I think I think the important point there was um, self-interest or selfishness um, needs to be understood in the right way for it not to go down the road of narcissism and right. Um, yeah. total disregard for other people. I think like I get, I get a lot of um, energy from the idea that uh, from the quote you just said, and that idea, which is if I care for myself, I'm going to just be such a better teacher, person for my dog, partner to my partner, son, um, brother, whatever, um, that, you know, the ultimate goal is serving others. The mm -hmm. one tool to serve others is care for yourself. If you want to serve others, if you want to be a good person, you have to take care of yourself. Um, yes. And I think when it's, I think when it's defined as that, so I know I sent you a question about self-love and promoting self-love. And I have worries about the narrative when it's disconnected from service towards others. Mm -hmm. I find sometimes it can be maybe misunderstood or misinterpreted by those who say, oh, I just need to worry about myself. I need to set up all these boundaries and, 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 and accept and whatever people do um, to love myself um, as opposed to, no, I need to love myself so I can truly love others. I feel like that needs, it always has to come in this like the same sentence or the same paragraph where the only reason that you would love yourself and care for yourself deeply is so you can be useful to other people, to those you love, you can protect them, you can care for them, you can compromise, like like the quote said, um, when necessary. I think if those two ideas aren't put together, then we get misunderstandings about what it means to be in love with yourself or to care for yourself. Um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I did have another question, just going back to being a dad. Um, yeah. What do you, when you, you, you made this point about, um, and I really like it because it's so, it's, it's like the humility in you, um, saying, you know, so, sorry, I, I, I overreacted admitting to, to misreading a situation. And we often think, and I sometimes feel this when I, when I would, you know, pre COVID days, when I would be able to babysit for my niece and nephew that I needed to present a certain, uh, 
image to them that I know exactly what I'm doing, that I got everything under control. <laughs> and when I do that, everything, everything is calm. Like when dominance reigns, calmness prevails type. True. I don't mean domineering. I mean, there's a good leader. Everyone's like, yeah, you're the, you know, you're the, you're the guy we need to follow because you're making the best decisions in, in the interest of the group and in, in the interest of us and all is good. Um, so that sometimes means you have to, I mean, the, the idea in my head was, or maybe this is a misunderstanding is that I had to be incredibly competent. I could never misread or overreact or underreact. It's always finding that balance, that sweet spot of responsiveness. Um, okay. So so where I'm going, Mike, hold on, um, is that that's the, we sometimes think to our, to our kids or to students or to the dog or whoever, or the cat, that we need to project this all-knowing um, image. Now, in your case, you found that something else, that something different works. Um, so maybe my question is, um, what do you think your kids are? Okay, well, hold on. Let me, again, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm running around in circles here, but there's two models. There's the model of the parent is all knowing, perfect, knows exactly what to do and projects that never admits to a mistake because um, admitting to that mistake would be weakness. The second model, which you suggested is saying, Hey, like, Hey, like, Hey, I screwed up a bit. Uh, I, I misread that, or, you know, for whatever reason, I just didn't make the right decision. That's like model two, right? What do you think your kids are looking for in a father, in you, in a dad? Do you have a sense of like the kind of guy, if, if you could, if they could do it, I'm not sure, you know, maybe they're too young or they haven't really thought about it explicitly. If you said, okay, make a list of five things you want your dad to be. Now, I know this is not in the question list I sent you, so you don't have to answer it. But do you think that you, they would have an idea or you have an idea of what they aspire you to be like? in relationship to them. Yeah, so as a, I guess, as a dad. No, yeah, no, not, no. not, I mean, yeah, there's, there's so many aspects of your life. So I guess like in, yeah. in as a father figure. Um, hmm. I, I'd say these, uh, uh, the universal things, I think that most psychologists or whatever would agree with is in some sense, they wanna be heard they want to be validated and they want to be, I mean, loved and respected. I mean, those things are clearly important, but I think, yeah, I don't know if they'd be able to articulate it. What I think they need in some sense is somebody to model humility maybe that's not the right word honesty that like you said it's really important that we acknowledge our own inadequacies because what starts to happen is then they think when they act in a way that's inadequate or inappropriate or etc then there's something wrong with them oh look my parents are perfect they don't do anything wrong they never admit to a mistake so i'm never going to admit to a mistake and i'm always going to pretend that everything's okay or whatever and that's a horrible way to live your life i'd say that's the way i don't want to say most people but that is a very common way of being and i would say one reason why it's easier for me i think 
is because maybe I've experienced the excess of denial, which is torturous. And then I'd say also a lot of my mindfulness practice is about trying to observe, turn the mirror upon, but to reflect on the illusory self, this idea that there is no I, there's no me, this isn't about me. And if I like, and so I think particularly in Western culture, we are so fixated on this. We, we're, not, we're not in balance in, our, in a spiritual sense. And so anything that um, goes against my sense of self, my ego defenses, all that kind of stuff, that's a threat. Therefore, if I acknowledge that, then I'm in danger, in which case there's no point to ever acknowledge that. And I think a lot of the practices of mindfulness are just regaining a sense of balance is loosening the grip of that ego-driven fear. And then you realize that actually, no, this actually makes me stronger, makes me happier, makes me more, makes me a better dad, person, human, et cetera. So do you think they just want you to be good enough? Yes. Sure, that's, I've heard someone say, you just have to be good enough or something like that. Um, but I do think that they, they deserve, I think too many kids are blamed for how the parent feels. And I do it too sometimes, right? You're making me angry. You know, no, the, no one ever makes us angry, right? We choose to be angry. And so it's okay to get angry. Of course, I get angry. But I try to say, I'm getting really angry. They may still perceive it as I'm telling them they're making me angry. And maybe their actions are making me angry, but I'm still the one who owns the anger. It's not their anger. And so I try to be clear about that too. And I'd say that's what kids really, I think, need more of. Right. So there, I mean, even in that framing of I'm getting angry, there's the, I'm taking responsibility for my emotion that popped up. I actually don't like the idea of choosing an emotion because I just don't think that that actually happens. I don't think like you're like, hmm, should I be, should I be angry now? It just right, comes. Right, right. It comes, right? Yes, yes. So yes, the question yes. is, okay, do you blame that um, you, yeah, like you said, you are making me angry. It's your fault or okay, I'm getting angry. Okay, that, that's, that's happening inside of me. I'm owning that emotion and I'm going to address it um, in, in a way that takes... So there you're role modeling responsibility. Mm. Yes. Um, not only for actions. Sometimes we talk about responsibility for actions, but also responsibility for emotions, which is so hard. And I don't think you can really take responsibility for your actions if you, probably, if you don't take responsibility for your emotions first, because we know emotions often lead to action um, it's a absolutely so, and just yeah. to contrast that to the message that most kids have been fed over the past maybe however long but more specifically over the past little while is that other people are responsible for their feelings right or mm. or if i'm upset because something happening out there it's not no. I'm not taught to process my sadness. I'm taught to blame X for my sadness and then direct my energy to fixing that as opposed to direct my energy into 
finding a way to center myself so that I might go and address that. But, but regardless of that, of course, within reason, but it, it's not about that. It's about me and what the hell's going on inside of me. And I need to learn to deal with that. And so and, that's, yeah. And Mike, and that, that, that sort of ties us back to that self-love, selfishness practice in the right way. Because if you do that, you're going to be, you're less triggered by all that stuff out there that otherwise might be like annoying or offensive. So maybe the right reaction when someone says something you don't like, or I've told this story, I think on a previous podcast, if someone, if I hold the door open for someone and they walk right past, I'm like, what the fuck? Like, what kind of society are we living in? Are we just like a bunch of like, what happened? Um, and Often it's because if I'm annoyed with something else or I'm like my blood sugar is low or I or I'm just like not looking forward to what I'm about to do and sort of taking responsibility for why that emotion would come up. And yes, that person who walked through probably should have said something, but that does not justify or mean that I should I should get annoyed with it. Um, and I think like I think to your point about taking responsibility for your emotions, um, if you acknowledge that you can use it as a way to, to identify the practices you need in your daily life to be more resilient and, and starts with me. And we'll talk about it in a minute is sort of focused on how do you empower people to, to increase their, or, or enhance their own capacity for well-being, as you put it, as you really, I think rightly put it. Um, and maybe that's saying, okay, what am I not doing in my day to day to be so annoyed at the random stranger who doesn't, who, describes my hair in a certain way or who comments on my uh, or, or something or says something that, you know, maybe they shouldn't have said, but it still doesn't mean I should go down the, you know, spiral emotionally um, or the person yeah. who walks through and doesn't acknowledge the favor, the incredible favor of opening a door. Um, <laughs> how dare they? Um, what am I not doing? And I find that to be such a powerful tool that we can walk around. What am I not without? Now, here's the balance. Here's this is the without what you described earlier, which is, oh my God, look at all the things I'm not doing. Yeah. As opposed to, hold on, what am I not, what am I not doing that maybe I should just factor in? Like what's one thing I need to think about doing in my daily routine to reduce the probability that the person who doesn't say thank you as I open the door doesn't set me off into a into a rage of how society is falling apart and this is it. Um, <laughs> right. And to, to yeah. be pedantic, you would want to say, what can I do so that I can? And that's the same. I'm, yes. I'm saying that to myself. Right. But yeah. Okay. So that's is, is that thing. important yeah. in your own, in your own study? Um, is that is, is how we frame the question. So why did you pick that up? I think that's actually really, I think there's something there and I, I just want to learn more about it. Yeah. It's, yeah. we want to say, it's not, what am I not doing? Or is it, so how did you put it? What, what can I do? What can I do? Which, to, right. Yeah. And why, so, why is that, why is that positive framing more important than the negative? I think it, I, I'd say, well, there's this whole field of positive psychology that I would encourage anyone interested in just to go and check it out. It does have a lot of great, stuff in it i would say it's another and I, I may be self i don't know maybe i'm ignorant in saying this but it's just another academic sleight of hand to 
take a bunch of ideas that have been around forever, coin it positive psychology, and then run around saying you came up with this new theory. So that's my bias opinion there. Um, but yes, I do think it's important because the more, so you could think about it as a close, what am I not doing? So I'm closing myself off in a sense, or I'm shrinking versus what can I do? There's just more opportunity there. It's more curious, it's more imaginative. And those qualities do have an emotional benefit to them. And I think they are more motivating for sure. And so I, I try, and I try really hard with my kids not to, because kids are constantly told, you're not doing this, you're not doing that, you should have done this, why didn't you do this, blah, blah, blah. And it's just, and I can get into that pattern myself. So how do I, I just try to reframing it into that more, what can you do? How can this be different? Those, those, I guess they're qualities, right? Or, or orientations. So there you go. Yeah. So the, um, the, the words we like the narrative, the, all that, that running narrative we all have, right? Um, so the words in that, the narrative is going to be there. I mean, I think even those who are, ex maybe I'm wrong here, but those who are incredibly experienced um, meditators, they can really quiet their minds. I'm sure they still, I think, um, yeah, they, it, it, they're still talking, right? The mind is always yeah. chattering. So you're saying, and I think this is important, it's not that you can stop what it's saying. It's what the, what is the words, what are the words being used by your that inner narrative? So as opposed to what am I not doing? Oh my God, you're right. The sinking, the pressure down, the downward effect. I said, what can I do? Awesome. What can like a flower, like opening up. Um, yes. So when you, when you, just to go back to something you flagged, which I thought was really interesting, the, that spin cycle that you, that, that, you know, you're the laundry machine and the ADHD interacts with being, or, or feel, or this feeling of being this or ADHD plus anxiety and, and being disorganized. And next thing you know it, you're on um, a 30 minute spin cycle. Do you, do you think, are, are there, are you, are you able, or do you try to like, okay, I got to change the words in my, in my, in my head. Is that like step one? Forget the emotions. It's deeper and that's harder to control. Maybe it's just the, the words I need to change. I need to reframe just the words in my head. Um, is that, am I, is that something you think about? Am, am I making sense? Um, yes, you, you are absolutely cycle when it deal when you deal with sort of the narrative in your head and the words that are floating around. Sure. The, so the, one of the core components of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is this sort of darling of psychotherapy in the Western world right now. And it is lovely. It's quite effective. It's great. Of course, like everything else, it has limitations and perhaps is used in not such I'll just stop with that <laughs> to avoid going down another rabbit hole. So CBT helps people reframe their thoughts. So it's not that we want to stop thoughts from going away or we sorry, we're not trying to make thoughts go away. We're not trying to avoid them. We're just trying to relate to them differently, right? So if I have a thought that I am useless or I'm stupid or whatever, I'm never going to be good enough. I might challenge that thought in my head. Oh, really? Is that true? Like, I, I don't know if that's actually true. Maybe. 
And so we practice externalizing that voice and almost parodying it in a way of like, ha ha, there you go again. It's the itty bitty shitty committee. And, and so that's kind of one, I like the act framing better, which is acceptance and commitment therapy. It's um, using it as a metaphor almost, right? Oh, there's, uh, it's, it's radio sour mic on, on 1010 FM telling the story of how Mike's so terrible. Isn't that funny? Those kind of things. Um, so there's that piece. And then I think where self-compassion is so beautiful is to acknowledge that that actually hurts, right? It actually doesn't feel good when you're beating yourself up. And, and so when we can, and that's where the emotion, you mentioned emotion as part of this, yeah, we can't really control the emotion in the same way we can speak back to our thoughts, but we can try to soothe ourselves, right? Heal, like soften. And that's where the self-compassion really helps to soften the emotional reactivity that you have in those moments. And, and then again, as it, that leads to more motivation because you're not, there's a wonderful thing I read in the self-compassion literature, I'm sure it comes from elsewhere, but when you're beating yourself up, you are the attacker right? You're the one beating and you're also the victim of the attack. And so you're getting a double whammy of this dysfunction and it's just horrible. So part of why we do turn to that self-critical voice is because I think it's, a, we have a sense of agency, right? Oh no, like you're not right. This is wrong. So we have some sort of sense of control, but ultimately it's unhelpful. So you mentioned the rabbit hole, we can go, there's so many holes we can go down. And I realize it's already yeah. um, a good choice. And I do want to ask you about starts with me and the festival. Okay. So maybe I could ask you two more questions. Okay. Um, and if I'm invited back to be a guest, ho get, what did we say? Guest, guest, ho guest, guest host. host? Guest sure. Yeah, just guest host. Um, then I will, I have so many, I have this whole page of things I wanted to bug you about, about small little insights you have that I feel are, are so powerful and can be very useful. They're incredibly useful for me and to the, to the listening audience. So if, I, if I'm ever invited back, um, I have lots of questions for you. So me transitioning to starts with me is not a, um, not an indicator of, um, Lack, of, Lack of substance on yours on your okay. side. No doubt. Um, I know. Do you have to go don't right let up your brain think like, oh, he didn't ask me about this powerful point. Yes. <laughs> don't let it. Don't. Okay. Sure. He's um, never coming back. Hold on. Do you have to go in six minutes? No. I got let's okay. go to okay. if we go to 440 or is 15 minutes okay? Totally. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sweet. Okay. Um um, okay, so I thought I would ask, okay, so about starts with me. Um, now the name is brilliant because it just embodies, um, it doesn't embody, well, it is personal responsibility. Um, and yet the thing that I'm interested about is your own, your own experience on campus was one, I think as, as you told me, and you can maybe reiterate a tiny bit here, is raging against the system. Um, 
you were you were you were at Concordia in the he- heady days of the Iraq War and and aspiring 11 and the, and a spiraling Israeli Palestinian conflict and all that that meant about war and the left and 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 Western capitalism and U.S. foreign policy and the war on terror and all all that all that jazz and um, and something that's that's that is common that I see on the university campus is an emphasis on systemic obstacles tearing down structural barriers um and what i what i found so both inspiring and fascinating about the starts with me message and in your message is sure there may be obstacles but really the key to success is taking ownership over your own behavior and your actions to make yourself successful regardless of what you face um where did for you mike where did the personal responsibility insight come from why did you not stay stuck in the rage against the machine mentality that you may have had as an as an undergraduate student and of course not to say all undergrads have this um right. but how did you how did you come across it why was it compelling because in many ways it's not compelling i want to be told it's someone else's fault that i'm a failure um or that i didn't get that job i it's it feels way better i mean at least hypothetically there's a there you can see the logic of it feeling better. I actually don't think it does, but I want to hear why, why did you think or feel or come to believe that the personal responsibility angle was the way forward for you and, and, you know, ultimately for so many others? I, I, the simplest answer is because prior to opening up to that idea, I was so miserable. So I I think we just when we give our agency away it's so hard to be well so so the first thing i think is after stewing in that for so long and thinking if the world the simple way to put it is i could feel better if the world changed (laughs) That is the, that's that narrative of poor me, poor me, poor me, poor me. And this isn't to discount the reality that many people face in the world where they are seriously oppressed and tortured and treated unfairly and all that stuff. There's no doubt that that is happening. And it's even hard to accept in some sense that even in those situations, you have freedom. And that's where people like Viktor Frankl and Nelson Mandela kind of just put us all to shame in some sense, or, or we should really question and Gandhi's another great example. So those people are way out on the extreme though. So none of us should really aspire to be like that or not expect ourselves to be like that. Um, but yeah, the, the victim or the just that the world's out to get me or the world's just a bad place. Therefore, there's nothing wrong with me. It's not my problem. Oh, why? you know, nothing, nothing's wrong here. I don't have to do anything. That's really comfortable. And although at the same time, underneath the surface, you're just, I often describe, you know, those hourglasses or those like time things with the sand, right? It's like, if you, that's what's going on inside of a person who doesn't take responsibility for themselves. And eventually it just drops out. And then you're just kind of totally fucked, 
right? And then, so I think that in some ways that happened to me. And then I think the pain and the suffering just got so bad that I had to do something differently. It wasn't, it certainly wasn't an insight on my part, right? It was, I'm so messed up. I don't know what to do. And then as I asked for help and got more help, every single response that I've ever received from the other side of the tracks from anybody worth listening to is stop blaming other people for how you feel. You are responsible for how you feel. And then that's where the idea of starts with me came from, of course. Right. So I was, I am, I am a activist at heart in some sense. I want the world to be a better place. And by trying to fix it from the outside, I just got more and more miserable. So by addressing my own issues first, then I actually know how to address issues. That's, I think, another problem in the activist sense is by just turning outward, you don't actually learn how to solve anything. Maybe you do, I don't know, but I think the personal responsibility is so powerful because it actually teaches you firsthand torturous experience of how you actually change something. And then once you have that sense of empowerment, then you can go out and change the world, which I think is what we all want, but it has to start internally first. It's not negotiable. And I don't know why we don't teach people that more often. I think, and that's why you have tower, towering figures of history like MLK or Gandhi or Viktor Frankl or that incredible woman from Afghanistan, the young girl. I can't remember her name, but she's another example of this incredible expression of the human spirit that shows us what's possible. Um, that I hope answers it in some sense. Well, it's um, it's it's this interesting paradox because so many so it's such a good mobilization strategy to focus on an external common enemy. Like in some ways, in that protest, in that rally, it feels good, right? Um, but I really love the image that you provided of the um, the what this the um, the sand. Oh, the hourglass thing. Yeah. The hourglass. Yeah, that that it, it's and it's sort of it. I, I'm wondering if there's like an analogy with like cocaine use or something where where that quick hit of the external enemy feels amazing for a short period of time, but it just burns out. And, and once that once it's where you're worse off actually having been energized in that way. Right. That's interesting. Right? Yeah. And a yeah. longer term source of energy um, actually is more in your interest. And it sounds like, and of course, I, I, of course, we're not to talk about personal responsibility isn't to say people don't face incredible barriers in their life and absolutely lack of luck, just arbi the arbitrariness of birth, depending on what country or neighborhood or parents my god it's 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 a crapshoot life um yeah but i guess the way out of that would be these these mess this messaging of okay this is your situation how do you navigate it 
how do you navigate in a way that keeps you active and motivated and up? And like, what can I do? What can I do as opposed to um, what can other people do and how can I be saved? Um, that doesn't, I think it's, you're, you're onto something in the sense that both provide energy, but one provides lo a long-term burn that leads to better outcomes in the end. And the, and the sort of the other, the external focus, what can other people do is feels good for a few hours or a few days or a few months, but ultimately it's just going to burn you out and you're no, you're no, you're not having yeah. to move forward. It doesn't get anywhere. One place, actually, I had this conversation the other day where I, I don't know how this can happen maybe, but I think this, it was in the context of income inequality, in, mm. particularly during the pandemic, the wealthy people are just, yeah. it's not fair to say they're robbing our economies blind. They're benefiting from their status in our economies and they're getting exorbitantly wealthy as a result. Yeah. So I don't know how much personal responsibility can do something about that. And right. so, Yes. In a sense, how do we, rather than bitching about it all, we do need to take action. But I think action against income inequality has to be done at a policy government tax level. And you as a political scientist, Mr. Dr. Zed, how can we, what could we do about that? So how do we blend? Because I think it is important to blend the personal responsibility, right? It's not just Amazon's fault, right? That I'm don't have what I want because they have everything. How can I embrace my own anger about that sense of unfairness? And how can we, because I do think income inequality is the biggest threat to our social cohesion. I think there's probably a lot of research to that as well. Yeah. How do we, how might we address that at a policy level or is that even possible? <laughs> Wait, hold on. I am interviewing you how dare you? <laughs> How dare you? One, I should say I'm, I'm not an economist, so I cannot. Oh, and you're right. That's true. Any that's degree true. of expertise. Um, and I, I don't even know. I can only imagine. Okay, this, this actually goes back to something I was thinking about. Let's say, Mike, okay, so you're a therapist, right? You're, you are now a certified therapist. If someone came to you and said, I just lost my job. Okay, so there, there's sort of two levels of analysis here. One, there's the policy level. What should government do? What should uh, what should we be advocating for in terms of like progressive taxation policies and the redistribution of wealth? Okay, there's a big debate yeah. on the left and the right about how to do that and the extent to which inequality matters or is it really just about poverty? Like who cares how much people have as long as poverty rates are going down? Maybe that's what we should focus on. Um, putting that aside, if the, the second level of analysis beyond the policy governmental level is the individuals. And this is what you pointed to. What can someone do who is yeah. unemployed, who's lost their job because of the pandemic? They come to you um, as a trained therapist. And I feel like I feel like most therapists probably would say, okay, we got to figure out a strategy for you to acquire new skills to adjust to a new reality. Um, it's a shitty situation, but what are our options here? Either to get angry, to waste your time saying this is just unfair, and yeah, it is unfair, or do you say, okay, 
how how can we figure this one out? What is, what courses are George is George Brown offering? What is UFT offering? How can you acquire the skills you need to create a new business opportunity, to get a new job, to adjust? Um, you know, how do you be proactive? How do you how do you build that strategy to sort of reassemble your life under incredibly difficult situations? I I feel like that's probably what a therapist would say. Therapists inherently, psychologists are inherently conservative, small c, in the sense of putting, building personal responsibility, encouraging individuals to take action. Am I wrong there? Is I, I can imagine me coming to you saying, Mike, like my life just got turned upside down. What do I do? You're like, oh, no, no, just wait for the government to change their taxation schemes. You wouldn't say that. You would say something like, okay, let's actually think about what assets, I don't mean financial. I mean, what full set of assets do you have? How can we come up with a plan to get you back on your feed in X number of months yeah. or whatever? Is that, is it my, you see what I mean? I do. And I, I totally agree. But the, but my point was more in lines of the activist, the emptiness of the outward focused activism. Right. And so, because we, activism, et cetera, whatever, advocating for progress or for better treatment of more people for a fair and just society is an essential goal of mine, I would say. But also I think, you know, the Martin Luther King thing of the long arc of justice is slow, but it bends toward freedom. I, I don't mm. know if that's exactly the wording, but, and I do believe in that. And I think reality bears that out the way that humans have evolved and become much more peaceful and cohesive and fair and etc so that was the piece of how do we take responsibility for our shit so that we can better advocate for that and then i think i got a bit lost in the like desire for a more fair distribution of wealth because anyway so let's not go down that path because yeah. it's not helpful but i agree yes in a one-on-one -on -one context we do always want to encourage and enhance the individual's skill set so that they can be more effective in the world right and i can also see um like situations where you can have a conversation with an individual. And sometimes I've, I've had this, these kinds of conversations with students about, okay, how can you work with others in your network? Like taking responsibility doesn't mean you as an isolated, like atomized individual, right. totally right. alone floating around. It just means what actions can I take to improve my situation? Yes, 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 and sometimes yes. I think that would mean like, who else can I work with? Maybe I should organize something with my neighbors. Like maybe we should start sharing Wi-Fi networks. Right. Yes. To yes. Yes. Reduce yes, bills. Yes, yes. Like stuff like yes. that. I feel like. Um, um, yeah. But okay. So the last thing I wanted to ask you, um, Mike, is about this festival you're you're organizing that you have spearheaded for the last three four years. This, uh, the yes. State of Mind Festival, um, one of Toronto, the GTA's premier mental health festivals for youth. And this year, um, I don't want to disclose too much because I will leave that to you to say where things are going. But this year, you're, we're, we're, you're we, uh, plus Jen, adding um, a workplace component to it, which is really exciting, a total logistical challenge, um, but you're, you're scaling up 
what what is the vision for you behind this festival why you know why the hell do we need a festival um yeah what what's the purpose what exactly are you doing why are you why are you roping me into something like this why am i spending <laughs> time helping you with such a thing um what's right. your purpose what's your vision here i'm gonna i'm gonna read the the stuff that jen and i have been working on on this specifically okay the vision is to create a world where human well-being is our most cherished asset and to reduce the number one cause of global disability mental health disorders by 50 percent that's the more i would say that's the more starts with me vision here's the mission <laughs> as we have it now. We cultivate human capacity for well-being to reduce human suffering and promote human flourishing. And as a social enterprise, we provide free mental health education to students funded and supported by our corporate partners. So the, and I, I'll read this last part here. We believe corporations have an incredible opportunity and responsibility to positively impact the world's number one cause of disability. So one of the ways we're trying to live up to that vision and mission is through engaging people in opportunities to act that out. And the, the festival, I think, is a beautiful way to start promoting and, and cultivating people's curiosity and imagination on what could we actually do differently. And that question, I don't think, as we've discussed a lot, is not being asked ever. It's just, that's bad. This is bad. This should stop. You should stop. You're stupid. You're this. It's so insane. So this goes back to the role modeling, the behavior, stop talking about it, just do it. I've had so many people reach out to me who perhaps have been caught up in some of the finger pointing games who just say, I just want to be part of something that's actually doing something. Yeah. And, and, and when I hear that, it helps remind me that we're moving in the right direction. Yeah. And so that I'd say is we just want to move in the right direction and we want to be an example to other people of what is possible. That's a huge on a personal level and also on a collective level. Like you, I like the example you gave of, wi-fi networks and this and that like that's super cool and so that's what we want to give people examples of what is possible and encourage them to do it well you, well it's a really inspiring mission and vision um everyone should look at the website maybe we can i don't know post something it's in there it'll be in there everybody yeah if you're listening to this chances are you buy by looking at your phone in the description, you can click on the website and go to it. Um, we're three minutes over. Thank you, Mr. Wow. Dr. Zarnett. Well, thank you. And I should say that my mic has been sponsored by Starts. <laughs> um, I have there. not purchased this. I refuse to purchase it, but Mike just sent it to my house. So I appreciate that. Mike, thank you. Yes, sir. Um, thank you, buddy. And um, if I'm ever invited back again, we need to do now. this more often. Yeah. What time, what time tomorrow should we do a, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we need a regular, yeah. it would be great. We do. 
but this time I I will be the co-host and I will be asking you questions. I actually feel more comfortable. I think it's I think you know this about my personality. I feel much more comfortable um, asking asking questions. It's it's okay. more of my. Um, but then maybe yeah. that's a that could be a wall emotional wall thing. Could be. So should we unpack? Should we unpack that? Some maybe point? we should. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, Mike, I want to I want to unpack what it feels like when someone says Doctor Zarnett. Ugh. <laughs> I don't like. Okay, I we're so past. We'll do um, it next time. Appe- we'll do wait, it next time. one thing appeals to authority. Okay. Doesn't it, my, my education is irrelevant to what I say. Someone should listen to it and say, okay, does that make sense? I'm going to go think about it on my own terms. It's irrelevant. The degree I have, I encourage people to take that approach to all everything else. They hear. Yes, there's experts, but experts often disagree. And I strongly encourage my students Mm -hmm. to think for themselves and do as much research as they can and do not defer to authority. Um, I think it. I think it leads us in the wrong direction. Um, so my Beautiful. PhD is irrelevant to what I say. It doesn't make it. Doesn't make it right. Doesn't make it any more wrong. It just makes it something for the audience to think about and consider and engage with, however they wish. So I think that's awesome. maybe where okay. that's where that comes from. Beautiful. Okay. Till next you, time.